0: And thank you, guys. Go ahead and have a seat. And I uh, want to just ask you a question before we get our Bibles open here. Um, how are you doing? You guys all right? How are you doing? We've been learning, right, about this whole thing. This is my story series that we just came off of. So we've been learning about perspective on our calling of God in our lives, intentionality with how we're living our lives, and generosity with how we give of our lives. And um, do you remember these? So I'm just asking, I'm just asking, how's how's your biblical perspective on your life right now? How you doing? I'll take these off because it's distracting you, I can tell. Do you remember, what a great little thing that uh, Tony and Tammy shared with us, and remember that day we thought, you know, it would be awesome to give these to everybody, and so you could have these out to just remind you? Well, Tony and Tammy said, guess what? Um, Let's just get a bunch for everybody. So if you want some God perspective glasses, you can get these at the connection point today, all right? Now, we have a limited supply, so you're gonna bust everybody down, and you'll push people down to get yours. Do it in Jesus' name, though, if you do that, all right? But, um... (laughs) What an awesome thing to be able to hear, especially from the lives of other people, um, how to have a proper perspective because every time we hear somebody's story, we see a bit of our story in it. And uh, today we have the privilege of continuing in that and um, Davey Blackburn is here in the house with us today and um, he is going to be speaking and Davey has a unique perspective. Um, He's actually uniquely gifted And equipped to be able to speak to us on certain issues of our lives, and so it's a privilege to have you back, buddy. And so let's welcome Davey back to our platform. All right.
1: Well, First Baptist, it is always an honor and a pleasure to be here with you guys. Um, You guys are like family to us, Uh, and you know, you may maybe I haven't had a chance to meet you, Uh, and and if if so, I just want to kind of introduce myself a little bit, um, but my name is Davey, and, and uh, I have, um, uh, man, it's so good to be with you guys, holy cow, just looking out, this is, this is awesome, I, let me tell you this, I get to travel around to churches all over the country and speak, uh, and it's a privilege of mine to be able to do that for a living, but right now in our, the current state of our country, you don't see the churches packed out like this because of a lot of, I mean, just a lot of reasons right now, but good for you, First Baptist, Come on, good for you that you came to the house of God to worship, you came to the wellspring of life, right? You came to drink from the only well that can really give us any kind of sustenance, any kind of satisfaction, any kind of hope, any kind of healing, and that is Jesus. And it doesn't mean you can't experience Jesus elsewhere, but there's something special that happens when we pack in a room like this. Scripture says that his his presence inhabits the praise of his people. Do you feel it this morning? You feel his presence and it's just really cool to be able to borrow some of that from you guys even just standing up here and seeing what God is doing in, in your life over the past um, couple of years. But uh, yeah, my name is Davey and, um, and, and I have the privilege of leading a ministry called Nothing Is Wasted Ministries and um, it really spawned out of the story that many of you guys will know and, and um, you, you know, we lost, I lost my wife in 2015 and she was um, a daughter of this house. Um, she is the daughter of um, your pastor and um, that obviously turned our world upside down, all of us. Um, and with, you know, without minimizing anything you know, that we have walked through at all, I just want to say that in, in all of the stretch of the journey that we've been on, God has been faithful and he has been good. And, um, and I've shared many, many, many times of some of the things that God did in my life to really help heal me through all of this and the things he's doing in our lives. And uh, now I get to lead a ministry where we help people in pain and trauma. Uh, We say that we help people in tragedy, trauma, and major life transition find purpose in their pain. And so I get to travel to churches all over the country, share the story of what God has done in our lives, and inspire people, because how many of you know the common denominator of life is pain, right? If you're not dealing with it, that means you were probably born yesterday, okay? And you probably should be in the kids' ministry right now. It might not be a great age-appropriate setting for you, Uh, we all experience it, and the thing that I have realized is a holy discontent for me, the more that I travel and speak, the more that I share my story, the more people come up and share their story with me, is I have a holy discontent that the enemy, right, you know we have a very real enemy that is working to steal, kill, and destroy, working to pervert everything that God has created. He's not very creative, You know that, right? The enemy is not very creative. God is the only one that can create. The enemy corrupts what God creates. And so the enemy comes to try to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, he can't steal your salvation, but he can steal your joy, he can rob you of your effectiveness, of your destiny. He can paralyze you in your pain. And most often than not, he causes us to be paralyzed and neutralized because of the pain that we've had in our past, the unaddressed pain, the undealt with trauma, the tragedies that we've experienced in our life, the losses that we've experienced. And can I just, can I just say this from the outset? I do not want you to look at me and the loss that we've experienced and say, well, you know, there's no way that it could ever, com- My, what I've gone through, Dave, you could never compare with what, you're, what you've gone through. And so you thereby diminish uh, your pain. Pain is pain. You hear that? Pain is pain. And what you're dealing with is painful. But the good thing is, is God is good Amen. in the midst of all of that pain. And that's what I wanna talk about today today uh, because as I get to uh, you know, lead this ministry and help people in this, um, there, there are some things that I'm beginning to see that are major common denominators and threads of the people I see that rise up above their pain by the power of the Holy Spirit and live out what we would call a redemption story. And I love the fact that we're in the series talking about stories and testimonies. How many of you know Revelation 12 tells us that we will overcome by what? Come on, the blood of the lamb and the what? Word of our testimony, Okay, and so it's so imperative that we are sharing stories. Why do we share stories? Because it empowers us, right? It inspires us. It gives us hope where we go, man, if God can do something like that through that person, what can he do in my life too? And we get to borrow people's faith when we hear the testimony of how good God has been in their lives. And so that's what I want to talk about today is how do we all experience, no matter where we're at, how do we experience what I would call a redemption story? How do we position ourselves for redemption? Now, I talk about some of this in a new resource that our ministry just released. It's called the uh, the Pain to Purpose 42-Day Devotional. We have these available for you out, right out here. They're normally $25 today. For First Baptist, your family, it's $20, but it's a 42 day journey. So if somebody in your life is going through a tough time, I would highly recommend taking, you know, buying this for them or maybe you're going through a tough time and you just wanna see what God's insights are into the, the journey, the pain journey that you're walking. We'll be, uh, have those available out there after the, the service. But I wanna really lean in on this idea of positioning for redemption. Did you know that God's in the business of writing redemption stories? Let me back up, maybe you're not even familiar with what the word redemption means, right? We hear it, it's a buzzword, something we read about in scripture, you hear the pastor talk about it, but what does redemption actually mean? Simplified Redemption is when you take something off the shelf. You pay a price to take something off the shelf and put it into use, right? Think about it. You get an iTunes gift card or you get a gift card to some store, your favorite store. Somebody paid a price on your behalf so you could take that token and exchange it to bring the thing off the shelf and put it into its intended purpose. Hello. How many of you know that Jesus 2,000 years ago paid the ultimate price for us, right? We couldn't do anything on our own accord. We couldn't white knuckle our way to saving ourselves from ourselves and from sin. But Jesus paid the ultimate price on the cross to take us, our lives, off the shelf, what the enemy meant to neutralize and paralyze and put us into glorious purpose. Come on, First Baptist, I'm preaching right now. That's what redemption is. And so we are saved by Jesus, but we don't necessarily all walk out a glorious redemption story. And so what is it that distinguishes the people that do and the people that don't? Because we've all experienced that, right? We either know somebody who, man, it's like, wow, they gave their life to the Lord, they got baptized, it seemed like they were on this right path, but something derailed them, something discouraged them, something paralyzed them. So how do we position ourselves to walk in the flow of or to catch the wave of the redemption plan that God has for our lives. You know that God is in the business of writing redemption stories. This is his desire for your life. This was the macro narrative of scripture, that there was this creation, there was a fall, and then there was this thread, all of scripture, this plan where God would redeem us from the fall by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross and then to raise from the dead. This is the macro narrative of scripture. This is the micro narrative for your life too. This is what Jesus wants for you, but how do we walk in it? Well, we have to position ourselves for it. Now, I learned this a couple summers ago. I went um, to San Diego with my wife now, and uh, we decided to take surfing lessons. Now, I didn't have this in the agenda to take surfing lessons. I don't know how you are when it comes to vacations, but I like to plan everything out. I'm a planner. And my wife, Christy, she is not a planner. She's extremely spontaneous. Um, and so we're riding the bird scooters around San Diego and she sees that there's surfing lessons going on on this beachfront. And she goes, let's go do surfing lessons. I'm like, well, it's not really in the itinerary and we gotta go to this thing. We can get some chips and guac you know, and sit out because I really wanna experience this. And she's like, come on, let's go. And so I, I'm the planner, she's not the planner. We compromised and we threw all the plans out the window and we went surfing. <laughs> You know? So we get down to this beachfront and I, promise, I thought it was a joke because there was this girl that comes out to give us the surfing lessons and she was the quintessential caricature of a California surfer girl. So she gets out and she's like, oh, do you want to catch some rad waves? And I'm like, that's funny. Oh, she's serious. Oh, uh, yes, I do want to catch some rad waves. She goes, all you have to do to catch the rad waves is position yourself to catch the rad waves okay let's go and I'm like whoa like hold on so like that's it that's all you're gonna tell me right now is just position yourselves to catch the rad waves like I need a little bit more instruction here there are things out there that will eat me okay like so can you give me something else so we start following grab our surfboard we're following her and she goes wait, wait 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 I forgot to tell you and I'm like okay this is where all the instruction comes in she goes you need to make sure that you shuffle your feet when you get on the ocean floor because there's stingrays and if you step on them they hurt real bad Okay, let's go. I'm like, what? Yeah. So we get out of there, we kind of paddle out. And I don't know if you've ever been surfing before. Raise your hand if you've ever been surfing before. I'm not talking about surfing the web. I'm talking about the actual surfing, okay. You go surfing and you get like, there's this little alleyway, it's this perfect pocket. If you get too far out beyond that alleyway, it's before the waves start to form. But if you stay too far in, it's while the waves are cresting and crashing. And so you have to find this perfect alleyway. You position yourself in the alleyway. You're looking out the ocean. You're waiting for this perfect wave to form. And then what what do you do? You turn your board around when you see it and you begin to paddle. And somehow in the midst of this, this perfect combination of like your effort and kind of seeing some things. And then this thing, this force that you can't control but it kind of takes you away, then you get to ride a wave. Now, I'm not saying it was an easy thing. It might be simple to position yourself for the rad wave, but it wasn't easy, okay? Let's just say I know how your front load laundry, how that feels, okay? It's just, but eventually I got up. And I rode this wave all the way into shore. And can I tell you something? It was the most exhilarating, adrenaline-pumping experience I've ever had in my life. I get to, and I'm like, did you see that? That was, I'm going back in there. And I started thinking about that later, and and I thought, that's exactly what it's like to position yourself in the flow of God's grace and mercy. You see, you realize that there are things that we cannot control, That God's spirit moves and does his thing and he writes stories and man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps, right? But there are some things that God is asking of us, requiring of us to step out in faith, to put some action and to make some decisions that are faith-filled. In fact, it's impossible without faith to please God is what scripture tells us. So there's this marrying of these two things that kind of coincide where God, he he has this superpower that we don't have that's other than us. And yet he asks us to put our natural with his super to see supernatural things happen. And that's what I wanna talk about today. What are the things that would position us rightly to be caught up in the flow of what God wants to do in our lives? For many of us in here, as we talk through this, you might realize that you might have to repent from some things. You might have to literally take your surfboard of life and, and turn the other direction. Isn't it interesting that Acts talks about, hey, if you wanna experience refreshment, repent. And so if maybe there's a season right now that you're in where you're feeling dry and you're feeling, I would say, hey, listen, if there's something that makes you feel a little bit convicted as we walk through this, is God, if God's word begins to reveal some th- stuff to you, repent because he wants this refreshment to come into your life. He wants healing, he wants hope, he wants grace to flow into your life. Now we're gonna be a little ambitious. Um, I'm used to preaching about 30 to 35 minutes and Pastor Phil said I have 45. So I'm gonna take a little time. Here we go, come on. Um, and so I want you to read, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter one and we're gonna actually do a flyover of the book of Ruth. And I wanna show you in this story of Ruth that there, is a, uh, there are three different characters that position themselves differently and thereby they experience a different outcome of their story. So Ruth chapter one, starting in verse one, I wanna read this. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Catch that? So there's crisis. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, you recognize that place, Bethlehem? Pretty significant place, right? Some would say it's the epicenter of the beginning of what God wanted to do here on earth, right? It's the, this is where Jesus came and he was born. And so Bethlehem becomes a very prominent place in Jewish history and in our history. And it says that they, from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. Say Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Any Ephrathites in here? Okay, all right. Um, And they went to Moab to live there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. From the very outset of this story, it is blanketed with tragedy. The the, the author of this wants us to know that there is a crisis going on right here. But but if you kinda of step aside from that, what you have to understand is the original Jewish listener, because things in this day were passed down through oral tradition before there was an actual written word, when they would hear this being read, they they would have noted something. They would have said, oh my gosh, like their ears would have perked because of all the names that were listed in this passage at the very beginning. The reason that would have been notable to them is because names held a significant meaning in early ancient Jewish culture. Names were not just given to a child because it was, oh, what's uh, trendy or what's not gonna get them made fun of at school or you know the way that we pick names. The way names were picked is that it was very prayerful. And so they would pray about how, what they should name their child and that name became this prophetic prescriptor to the child's destiny. And, and so they would, they would pray about it and they would name the child and then you would normally see that this name had one of two directions, one of two trajectories that their life could carry out based on the meaning of that name. And as they would name it, they would kind of step back and they, everybody knew that the different trajectory or the different direction, the choice of which direction that that child went in lay in the child's hands. This is why you see over and over in Scripture God renaming people, right? You see Jacob being renamed to Israel. Jacob meaning deceiver, right, heel grabber, supplanter, his life characterized that for a long time, and then God decides to change his name to one on whom God fights, right, On, on whose behalf God fights, which is Israel, so instead of you fighting and deceiving and trying to strive and pine for your own way, why don't you trust God, and this is gonna be a people that trust God that he's gonna fight their battles for them, so God tries to rename people in scripture to try to reset their identity, and this identity is set from the very beginning, and a trajectory is given, and it's kind of the two sides of the same coin, where you see, one is a positive trajectory and one is a negative trajectory. But the choice of whether or not that child was gonna go in the positive trajectory or the negative lay in their hands. Listen to me. The choice on whether or not they were going to align themselves with God's redemptive plan for their life or a destructive plan that the enemy wanted to lure them into lay in their hands. So let's look at these names. Elimelech. Elimelech means God is king. I find it really ironic that this man whose name God is king had first settled his family in the city of Bethlehem that was kind of the epicenter of the, of Canaan, the promised land, where God always promised that he would provide for and protect his people, where he would sit on the throne as their king. And the second crisis hits their life, famine hits their life, he decides to supplant his family out of the promised land and go to a land that is a very godless Uh, uh, enemy nation, Moab, where there was corrupt, massively corrupt practices that were taking place in Moab, child sacrifices. They were a a people who had decidedly been uh, an enemy and and formed animosity against God's people. And so here's a Limelech whose name means God is king, but when crisis hits, it reveals who really is king in his life. Come on, isn't this true of us? In fact, the Jewish midrash, which is the rabbinical interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures, would tell us that he goes to Moab to strike up a strategic alliance with the king of Moab because he doesn't have a lot of confidence in God providing for his family. The next best thing would be his sons providing for his family. Well, he doesn't have a lot of confidence in his sons and we can tell that because of how he named his sons. He named his sons Malon and Kilion. Malon means invalid. Kilion means pining or wasting away. All right, not a lot of confidence there. So he goes to the king of Moab and he says, will we stri- can you strike up a strategic alliance to take care of my family? I will marry your sons off or my sons off to your granddaughters, Orpah, And Ruth, and that is where Elimelech thinks he's gonna receive his protection. The problem is, is he's gone outside of the places of God to receive his protection. And every time you go outside of the places of God, every time you go outside of the ways of God, you remove yourself from the protection of God. And there is nothing that can really protect you from this. And tragedy strikes their life. Elimelech dies, Malon dies, Kilion dies. Now listen to me, friends. Malon, Kilion, and Elimelech don't die because they remove themselves from the protection of God. hear me clearly, tragedy didn't happen in their life because they removed themselves from the protection of God. Tragedy happened in their life because they're human beings, hello. Tragedy happens in our life because we live in a fallen and broken world, not because we've done something wrong and removed ourselves outside of the favor of God or somehow he's punishing us or anything like that. That's not why tragedy happens. That's not why there's pain in this world. There's pain in this world because we live in a fallen and broken world. Jesus told us this. He said, in this world, you will have sorrow, but take heart for I've overcome the world. So let me ask you a question. When tragedy strikes, would you rather be in Moab or would you rather be in Bethlehem? Would you rather be aligning yourselves with the people and in the places of the enemies of God or would you rather be under the protection of the ways of God around the people of God in the places of God? Come on, I would rather be in Bethlehem And that's the first thing we have to realize if we're gonna position ourselves for a redemption story, we have to immerse ourselves in the places of God. Immerse ourselves in the places of God. Because what I have found is that when things begin to dry up in our lives, the first reaction of us as humans is to jump ship and try to find the thing that we need to to, to try to satisfy our soul over somewhere else that is different than the only person that can satisfy our soul, Jesus. Jesus and we strike up strategic alliances with these little G-gods. Hello. We call those coping mechanisms. Pain management. I wonder what little G-gods that we've struck up strategic alliances with in here today. Like the, like the little G-god of Alcohol. you know, it's just, it's just been a really, like it's, it's been a tough day. I just really need that glass of wine. You what? You need it? Well, wait a minute. Like drugs, prescription medication, relationships, sex, career achievement, accolades success i mean you name it the world offers it and it always overpromises and underdelivers and it will always tell you that it will fill that god-sized hole in your heart but it always leaves you feeling empty you see anything that you and i need or depend on other than god listen to me friends is an idol And can I tell you something? It's almost a daily experience that God is revealing to me idols in my life because I am fallen and broken and a human. Just the fact that you and I have idols in our lives do not make us bad people. It makes us sinners who need a savior. And we need to apply the gospel to those spaces of our life so that those idols can be broken so that we only depend on Jesus. We have to, and the only way we do this is by immersing ourselves in the places of God. So practically speaking, what does that mean? Well, getting in God's word on a regular basis, right? You get in God's word, not so that you necessarily get in God's word, but so that God's word can get in you. I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you, right? When God's word gets inside of you, then it just kind of comes out of you and it flows from you when your life is squeezed, so we get in God's word and we immerse ourselves in it and we spend regular time with him in prayer and and, and, and we memorize and meditate on scripture and that's immersing ourselves in the places of God. Let me, can I ask you, what, when was the last time you had a regular season where you were spending time in God's word? Well, David, it just feels kind of dry. Like sometimes my life just feels really dry and it's just... I'm struggling to really hear from God. You know what I'm encouraged by? I love the Hebrew language because the Hebrew language gives us some insight into the language of God, right? And that's the, the ancient Hebrews. They believed that, 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 that the Hebrew language was God's language, right? It's the language that was passed down to them. But one of the things about the Hebrew language is the word for desert, okay? The word for desert is the word midbar. It's akin to the word dobar. Dobar is the root word for the word midbar. Midbar means desert, Dobar means speaks. Come on. How many of you know that it's often our desert seasons that God speaks to us the most? Let's go. Why? Because sometimes God has to remove us from all the things the world is trying to distract us with and that the world is promising us so he can get us to a space where we are clearly listening to him in soul dependence on him so he can download to us insights that we wouldn't otherwise know if we were in this mountaintop experience. And so even though it feels dry right now, continue to apply yourself and immerse yourself in scripture because when you do that, I promise you, God will reveal some things to you in his time and it will be perfectly appropriate for that season. Church, I mean, man, I'm preaching to the choir because we're all here, but at the end of the day, how much has the enemy tried to rob us from the fellowship of believers over the past year and a half? Come on. Literally every excuse that we possibly can. Why? Because the enemy's tactic is if he can get us isolated, come on, then he can get us devastated. He can completely destroy our lives. His only tactic for us as believers is to divide us off from everybody else because then we begin to waste away. We're cut off from the body and we begin to waste away. But when we immerse ourselves in the places of God, friends, when we show up in regular church attendance, when we get involved, when we're life on life with each other, God does something so powerful in our lives. He fills us with him. We begin to, as we talked about earlier, we begin to borrow other people's faith until we have faith of our own. Come on. It's the power of being with each other in these places. So we have to immerse ourselves in the places of God. Our temptation is, is when things dry up, we tend to wanna jump ship. If our marriage is drying up, Feels kind of dry right now in Bethlehem. I know God that you, this is like the, I, I made a covenant, but but Moab looks really attractive right now. Moab's kind of fun to be with. Man, Moab really gets me when I kind of talk about my problems over in Bethlehem. Moab understands me. Moab helps me to feel understood. I feel really good when I'm around Moab. Moab is a trap. It's a lure. I know it's dry in Bethlehem, but did you know that Moab is a desert region and they were experiencing the same famine? So if it's dry in Bethlehem, come on friends, it's drier in Moab. It's a mirage if it looks green, friends. It's a lot drier in Moab. Don't jump ship when things tend to get dry. In fact, I would implore you that when things get dry, you should dig deeper. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have ever been to Napa Valley, but when I was out in California, I went to Napa Valley and we're like walking around all these vineyards and I was shocked. I know you're from Northern California, so you would, you would know this, right? I was shocked because I thought, here I am this naive self, right? I'm going, I thought it would be like, I'm thinking vineyards and grapes and it's gonna be this lush, rich, dark soil that all of these vines are growing out of and that's not the case, right? It's actually very dry and arid. And so I asked one of the, the experts there at, at one of these like uh, wine venues, I said, hey, I, I don't understand this because I would have thought this would have, how do these grapes grow? I mean, Napa Valley's known for the best grapes in, in, in our nation. So how do they grow in this dry and arid soil? He goes, oh no, grapes need dry and arid soil. And I said, well, wait, unpack that for me. How, like, I, how, why? He said, he said, the vine has to struggle and when the vine struggles, to the degree it struggles, is the degree it produces a richness in the fruit. Oh, First Baptist, I could preach this all day long. Because Jesus said in John chapter 15 5, he is the vine, and we are the branches, and if we remain in him, even in the struggle, come on, that we will bear much fruit, but apart from him, we can do nothing. This is why Paul said, if we want to experience the resurrection of Christ, we have to remain in him and experience the suffering of him as well. This is the portal by which we experience redemption stories. He raises us up when we... Stay in him and remain. So immerse yourself in the places of God, no matter how dry it feels. Dig roots, grow where you're planted. Don't jump ship like Elimelech did. In fact, scripture goes on to tell us, all right, now now you're gonna have to listen faster. Okay, here we go. Scripture goes on to tell us in verse six, it says, when Naomi heard in Moab, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing for them. By the way, God always comes to the aid of his people. He has never missed a deadline. He has always been faithful. Even in the 11th hour, he's gonna come through in the nick of time. It's just like God when we think all hope is lost for him to just boom, step in and rescue. And sure enough, he proves himself faithful here. He comes through the aid of his people in Bethlehem and it says she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, halfway back, she looks at her daughters-in-law and she goes, hey, listen, there's nothing here for you in Bethlehem. Go back to Moab, just live your life. I'm gonna go back to Bethlehem. And Orpah says, okay. And she goes back to Moab. Do you know what Orpah's name means? Orpah's name means the back of the neck. She literally, in that moment, she has this crossroads decision moment and she decides, in this tragedy, she decides to turn her back on the places of God and go back to Moab. Whatever happened to Orpah? Well, we know there's not a book of the Bible named Orpah. She kind of becomes a footnote in the story of it. At the end of this message, I'm gonna tell you what the Jewish Midrash tells us, but scripture never tells us explicitly what happens to Orpah. And I think that's the point. She just kind of like ends up going this way that isn't notable whatsoever. In fact, was probably very destructive. And so Ruth looks at, or Naomi looks at Ruth and goes, hey, um, your your sister-in-law, she's gone back. Why don't you go back too? Man, I love Ruth right here. This is the moment of decision right here that every single one of us are faced with, even here this morning. In verse 16, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. I just love the fervency of this, right? And then I love the obviousness of this next verse. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. I'm like, yeah. yeah, I love that because Ruth had no idea anything about this God other than what she saw in Naomi's life. Other than the, the, the semblance of a testimony that Naomi had where she said, you know what? I know we've made the wrong choice to go to Moab, now I'm gonna turn back and repent and I'm gonna go back to Bethlehem. And there was something about the way that Naomi carried herself here where Ruth goes, I don't know this God, but however you're standing in the midst of all of this stuff, I need that. So I'm gonna follow you. Listen friends, you have no idea the influence that you have as you share your story. You have no idea the testimony that you carry. You have no idea who's watching you, who's following you, who's looking at you. It's like when it's like in the fights that break out in middle school. You know what I mean? When the fight breaks out in the hallway, every head snaps to attention to see what's going on right there. There's all the, ooh, fight, fight, fight. When the fight breaks out in your life, friends, that's when every head is gonna snap to attention to see how you respond to that. And they're gonna be ministered to by the way that you respond to that, depending on how you respond, whether it's a, a godly way or whether it's not. They're gonna be influenced by that. So pay careful attention to to the decisions that you make in this. And what we have found is that it's usually not the tragedy that ends up derailing somebody. It's usually the primary, secondary, or tertiary decisions that follow those tragedies. And Naomi goes, I'm going back. Ruth goes, I'm going back with you. So we have to immerse ourselves in the places of God. The second thing we have to do is we have to surround ourselves with the people of God. Surround ourselves with the people of God. They get back to Bethlehem, and it says this in verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Say Boaz. Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up with the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, let me just stop right here, because this could be really confusing if you don't understand the context of what's happening here one of the things that god always intended for his people was that they would be blessed to be a blessing to other people and that there would be there there were going to be outsiders and people cast out of society marginalized oppressed right ostracized that he wanted them to be brought into the family of god Okay, he wanted them to be grafted in as scripture often tells us. And so while he chose the Jewish people to kind of make his name known in all of the earth, he made provision in the Jewish law to make sure that the marginalized, oppressed, cast out and ostracized could always find a place in the family of God. One of the ways this uh, was practiced is that when they would go and harvest their fields because they were an agrarian culture, they would leave the corners of the field uncut so that specifically the widow, the orphan, and the alien would be able to come and glean from the fields and have provision, even though they weren't necessarily right standing members of society, okay? Now look, widow, orphan, alien. Ruth is all three of those. A widow, an orphan, and an alien. And so Naomi knows this, encourages Ruth, yeah, go to this field. However, it's really interesting Ruth has no idea the significance that Boaz holds in her life at this moment. Boaz is what's called a kinsman redeemer. What this means is Boaz, because he's a closest of kin, he and another guy in this story, they have the right to be able to purchase uh, essentially uh, uh, the rights for, for Ruth to come into the family so they can pay the price for Ruth to be brought into the family. That's called a kinsman redeemer. Now, what I love about this is Ruth has no idea that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. Ruth all of a sudden stumbles upon this field, and she goes, I'm gonna go work out in this field. And Naomi's like, yeah, you should go work out in that field right there. Look what it says right here. It says, so she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. Watch this. As it turned out, <laughs> I love this. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech, who happened to be the only person, aside from another guy, who could purchase her back into being part of the family. How many of you have ever had an as it turned out moment? Come on. Where you find yourself in a space, in a place where you go, how in the world did this happen? Oh my gosh, it must be coincidence. Like how did my, all of my, like everything here from this part of my life and this part of my world and it all like converged in this moment right here where it's like, what? And as it turned out, one of the things I love about the Hebrew language is they believe that if there is no word for a particular concept, that the concept itself doesn't exist. Did you know there is no word in the Hebrew language for the word coincidence? Come on, Somebody. Why? Because the concept doesn't exist. It's a westernized term that we have made up. It's something where we try to attribute some kind of, uh, some kind of credit to, to the universe for what has taken place in our life. But how many of you know we serve a God of providence, not of coincidence? We serve a God that takes every single step and every single path and every single decision and he weaves it for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purposes. So as it turns out, he's writing a redemption story in your life. Now, what was it though, and I was so intrigued, I was so curious, what was it that drew Ruth to Boaz's field? I don't know. I mean, I can't tell you scripture says explicitly what it was, but Boaz's name means strength. And if you're a leader in here, a supervisor, a manager, a boss, you know that the culture of what you lead flows out of the character of who you are. Come on. I believe that Ruth saw a culture, an ethos of strength in this field because all the people working this field, they were a part of the culture of this man who had a strength of character, a fortitude, a resilience, of faith that stood in the bedrock no matter what would try to shake him. And so I believe that Ruth gets drawn to this culture of strength and decides to surround herself with people of strength. And it ends up positioning her in a place that it, as it turns out, just so happens to be the person who could purchase her into the family of God. This tells me that it's imperative that we are very careful who we surround ourselves with. Yes. Did you know that the first step away from God is usually the step away from the people of God? So Adversely, I have to believe that one of the first steps toward God is usually the first step toward the people of God. And so even right now, if you recognize that the people that you've surrounded yourself with are not people of character, they're not people of strength, they're negative, toxic, gossipy people, which by the way, those people will only drag you down. You know that, right? I love that Dave Ramsey says that you are the average of the 10 closest people to your life. That if you wanna see where your life is heading in the next five years, just look at the people around you. You see, you think you can bring people up, but usually they're dragging you down. And I love in church culture, especially, gosh, when there's a movement of God like this, I love talking to to places where there is a movement of God going like this because I wanna warn you that the way the enemy would like to get in and destroy the movement that God is doing right here is he wants to get on the inside of relationships and divide. He wants to cause dissension and disunity. He wants to cause you, when you have a problem with somebody or you've been hurt by somebody, something said or something did, he wants to cause you to go to someone else and talk about that so that it spreads around because it makes you feel better about yourself when somebody else is talked down about. You feel like it positions you a little bit differently in the status of this community. Instead of going directly to the person and saying, hey, let's talk about this, what's going on, right? Right? Can I I promise you something? I know it feels good when you're around a group of people and they're talking about somebody else. But if someone is gossiping about someone else to you, you better believe they're gossiping about you to someone else. That's not a person of character. That's not a person of strength that you wanna surround yourself with. It will only destroy the movement that God is doing here and the movement that he wants to do in your life. We have to surround ourselves with people of strength, People of character, godly people. Plans fail for lack of counsel, friends. But with many advisors, with godly counsel, plans will succeed. Our life will fail for lack of counsel. I know some of us like to just go on our own and on our rogue because we don't want anybody kind of speaking into our life. But you need people who love you more than they love their relationship with you. You know what I mean? that aren't afraid to tell you the things you need to hear, that are gonna stir you up and spur you on toward love and good deeds, as Hebrews tells us. We've gotta surround ourselves with godly people, Amen. iron sharpening iron. Ruth goes to this field, just so happens to be the field of Boaz. And what happens? Well, I think that leads us to the last point. The last point is this, that we have to remind ourselves of the promises of God. God. Remind ourselves of the promises of God. Now, let me, get, let me kind of back up and go in reverse. Before Ruth goes out to this field, actually, while the women were, are about to arrive in Bethlehem, it says this in chapter one, verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Did you know that Naomi's name means sweet? So when they're coming back to town, these women are like, oh my gosh, this is Naomi. She's got this sweet presence about her. And it says, uh, can this be Naomi? But look at what Naomi does. She says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me sweet. She says, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. So she changed her name. Naomi decided to put a label, not just on her situation, but she decided to label herself by her situation. She decided to ad- adopt an identity of her situation. This is what we do, friends. You fill in the blank. I am, right? Now, I happen to work with a lot of people who have experienced loss, and one of the things I see on Instagram profiles and Facebook profiles is identifying themselves by that. I am a widow. I am a widower. I am a divorcee. I am an addict. I am unemployed. Can I tell you something, friends? That is not who you are. That is a season that has marked your life. But it does not have to define your life. Because there is someone else who has reserved the naming rights for your life. Do you know how naming rights work? Some big company will buy the rights to be able to name this big, like, coliseum or stadium. You know, Banker's Life is in Indianapolis where where we hail from. A subsidiary of Conceco, Banker's Life, they purchased about 12 years ago the rights to name that building for $40 million. That's it. Why in the world would you pay that much just to have your name there? Well, because your name means a lot more than just your name. The label on that means a lot more than there's an entire brand, an entire identity, and an entire ethos and culture around that. And Naomi decides to name herself, to brand herself, to identify herself with her situation. But can I tell you something, friends? 2,000 years ago, Jesus paid the ultimate price to name you, to name you his child, to name you chosen, to name you loved, to name you called to name you a holy priesthood, to name you a royal nation. Come on, friends, Jesus has named you. And so while you and I want to say I am blank, there is a greater I am that fills every gap that we experience in our own lives. And he is good, and he is loving, and he is kind, and his righteousness is on you if you are a believer, no matter what you've done, and so, Naomi labeling herself by her situation becomes a limiter in her life because we can only rise to the labels that we put over top of us, which is why the Holy Spirit is such a powerful thing. When we recognize that we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us who has given us a new identity, a new name, a new calling, a new destiny, a new trajectory, and in spite of, despite of anything that we've ever done, thought, imagined, or acted out, that he has called us into a new life, it becomes this powerful thing. And then he gives us the ability to begin to name our situations differently and have those perspectives, the biblical perspective glasses that you guys have been talking about. Because he that names, friends, has dominion. Adam was given dominion at the beginning of time. How did he carry out that dominion? What was his assignment? Name the animals. When you and I begin to name our situation differently, when we begin to name it through the lens of how God sees it, it changes something in our situation. It raises us up above the situation. Why do we worship? Why do we sing praise? Why do we sing about the promises of God? You see, so often we spend time talking about our problems over and over and over and over and reeling about them and ruminating about them and thinking about them and worrying about them. But when we go and we step into a space like this and we sing about the promises of God, God's promises and his character is so big that the problems of our life begin to diminish and they look so small. And so we sing To remind, to remind ourselves of God's promises. And this is what Ruth does. Oh my gosh. It says, Ruth, in chapter three, verse six, it says, so she went down to the threshing floor. So we skip a couple chapters and we see this thing play out. It says, she goes down to the threshing floor, and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. And Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. Well, I'll say, she uncovered his feet. and his Feet probably got cold, you know? <laughs> he turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth. She said, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, I read this and I I saw the scene and I was like, that is a very weird scene. It's odd, isn't it? Ruth comes down, she's at his feet, she uncovers his feet, wakes him up, super weird, okay? It gets weirder. Because that phrase, uncovered his feet, it's used in another place in scripture and many scholars believe it doesn't actually mean uncovered his feet. It actually means something a little bit weirder. It means uncovered his circumcision. Okay, if you're in here and you're, uh, you, you're not sure what that means, Pastor Phil would love to bring you up to speed on all of that after, okay. Now I promise that sounds super weird, but I can promise you there's nothing, most scholars believe there's nothing inappropriate or like at all going on here. But this is very important. Because circumcision is an important signifier and marker in the Jewish people. Circumcision was the marker that God told his people, the, the covenant that he would step into with his people. And in this covenant, the sign was to be circumcision. The covenant was, I will always provide for you. I will always protect you. I will bless you, make you a blessing so that you can be a blessing to others. And then what I'm asking you to do is partner with me to bring other people into the family get that? So there's this promise that Boaz, as a Jewish man, had, by being circumcised, had stepped into a covenant with God. Ruth is reminding Boaz of the covenant that he made with God. Friends, you know sometimes it feels like we have to remind God of his covenant with us, not because he ever has to be reminded because he forgot, but when we sing praise and worship and we sing his promises, it seems like we're reminding God of how good he is and how, how, how glorious he is, how amazing he is. It's not reminding him, it's reminding us because we need to know it, because we are easily, we easily forget. He does not easily forget his promises. He is always faithful to bring them out to fruition. But there is something that stirs in us when we begin to step into praise and we are reminded of God's promises that we begin to have this empowerment where we can walk courageously in the difficult things that God has asked us to do because the things God asks us to do in this fallen and broken world is not easy. It's not easy but we have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. What? According to his power at work within us, not our own power. And so when we begin to say, no, I'm not gonna worry about the problems of my life. I'm not gonna worry about, those are real, those are valid, but at the end of the day, I'm gonna focus my eyes on the Savior. I'm gonna focus on my promises that I have received from God. I'm gonna focus on the the promises of his word. And when I focus on those things, all of those problems begin to subside. And And Ruth reminds Boaz of the promise that he made with God. Three different widows, Three different responses, three different trajectories. Orpah turns her back on God. Naomi grows bitter toward God. And Ruth, she befriends God. She tucks herself in the cloak of her kinsman redeemer. Ruth's name means friend. Now, whatever happened to Orpah? Again, we don't know from scripture, we don't. I wish I could say we did. We know from what the Jewish rabbis used to teach. They taught that Orpah went back to Moab and that she ended up having four great-grandsons. Now, we know what happened to Ruth. Ruth had a great-grandson, didn't she? That out of this union between she and Boaz, she ends up producing a great-grandson named what? David, wonderful name by the way. And, And he became the greatest king that Israel ever knew. And then ultimately in his lineage, come on, the king of kings came and God fully redeemed Ruth's life, even included her in the genealogy in Matthew. To note, I can take everything and anything that seems beyond repair and bring it into the family and restore it and redeem it. So her great grandson was David. The Jewish Midrash teaches us that Orpah had four great grandsons. All four of them were giants do you know what one of them was named? Goliath. I don't know if that's true or if that's just what the rabbis would teach, but how profound is that lesson? That... This one person decides to turn her back on God and align herself with the enemies of God. And she produces this lineage that has an ever increasing animosity against God's people. And this one person who aligns herself and positions herself in the story that God wants to write in her life through immersing herself in the places of God, surrounding herself with the people of God and reminding herself of the promises of God, she produces a lineage that listen, ultimately defeats this Goliath right but then even further beyond the line ultimately defeats the biggest Goliath of all time and that is death and sin and shame what can God do in your life if you position yourself for redemption like Ruth did it's unbelievable what God can do you get to make that choice he wants to work in your life he wants to work, and simply all it all it takes is us just opening ourselves up to His work. God, what do you want to do? I want to walk in Your ways. Can we pray right now, Jesus? I just ask. Then, in this moment, as we respond, as we, as we just take a moment and we reflect, I pray that You would just do something really powerful in this room. Would You stir us? Would You move us? Would You bring us into? the reality of who you are and what you have done for us how anything in our life can be restored it can be redeemed it can be brought back and and your promise to us is that you love us and that everything that comes into our life passes through a loving father's hand that you have our best interest at in heart that you know the plans you have for us it's plans to prosper us plans not to harm us. So even the situations that seem like they are harming us, that that it's, that it's a beautifully crafted story that you are weaving and working for the good of our, of our lives. I pray that we would recognize that, that we would know that, we would walk in that. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just wonder if today the very first step that you need to make is to position yourself for redemption is just to, make Jesus the Lord of your life. To believe that he died on the cross for you. To receive the free gift of salvation that he has made available to you. To believe and trust in the resurrection power of Jesus. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to rescue ourselves. It is only by the finished work of Jesus on the cross that we can be plucked up from the miry clay and our foot can be set on a rock. But right now, I believe he's calling some people He's calling you home. He's saying, put aside those little G-gods, put aside those idols and and come into relationship with me. I love you. I will fill you. I will restore you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. If today you need to step into relationship with Jesus, would you just right where you are, every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just say, "Hey, hey, Jesus, I need you. Just cry out to him. You can do it silently, but do it in your heart. Say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to rescue me. I need you to save me. I wanna give you the keys to my life. I want you to be Lord and Savior. I've tried to do this by myself. I've tried to do it on my own. and I continually fall up short. Would you rescue me? I believe you died on the cross for me and you raised from the dead. And I want to follow after you. In your name I pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you just prayed that prayer with me just now, would you just put your hand straight up in the air? Let me see it. Nobody looking around, just put your hand up. Amen, 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 amen. Amen, amen, you can put your hands down. If you prayed that prayer to receive Christ, we want to connect with you. We want to journey with you. I would invite you to come down and talk to one of the pastors afterwards. We'll be down here, the prayer team will be down here after the service. I would invite you to go to the Connection Center and tell somebody, say, today I prayed to receive Christ. We wanna walk with you in this journey because you just made the greatest decision that you could ever make in your life. You have jumped out of the starting block of the greatest journey that you could ever have in your life and we wanna walk with you in that. So Jesus, right now, I just ask that as we, as we, as we leave, as we dismiss, as we as we go from here, would you give us courage? Would you give us strength to be your people, to be your church? I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to repent from the, the spaces that, that, we are, that we've been residing in, that we've been immersing ourselves in, that we would leave the Moabs and head back to Bethlehem where you show us that, where you reveal us those, of those things in our life. I pray that you would just continually remind us that you are with us and that you love us. you have good things for us. When the world tries to distract us, when the world tries to get us off mission, bring us back into that. We love you. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. 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 Guys, thank you so much for letting me be here. Thank you for letting me share. Um, Pastor Phil, I'm gonna let you come up and close it for us. And uh, I love you guys. I love you guys.
0: No, Davey, you came to us 13 years ago. You are just like a punk kid. But God, God has wounded you. And he's growing you. And I don't want to be in a hurry right now. Some of you are like, come on, Phil, come on, get us out of here. I'm sorry if it's, there is, there is, the Lord is moving in here right now. And I know we have another service coming in. They can just wait. Because God's got something powerful for them. And maybe I'm making this all about me, but I, I, need, I need prayer. because I want to rename myself. And I fight that every day. And I know I'm not alone here. And um, I don't even know how to do this. So I'll just tell you what's on my mind. I, I want you to pray over me anyone else who wants prayer over your situation right now because you're you've either isolated yourself renamed yourself or you have forgotten that your father is a good And he loves you. And you just want prayer over that. You just want prayer to get out of that. And you want to make some changes today. I need that right now. And if you need that over your situation, if you don't need that over your situation, don't feel bad. That's awesome. That's awesome. But if you're like me and you need that and you want to stand right now, signifying I need that, or you want to just walk your way down here, I'm going to ask you to come back up here and just pray over us that God will help us with this because without the Lord's help, I I can't do it. And so, how do you want to respond, church? How do you want to right now? You can stand where you are and say, I want prayer over my situation. You can come up to the front here and, and just stand underneath this with me. However you want to respond at this time and just ask him to pray. I want you to pray specifically for us, okay? Yeah.
1: We feel like we're at a loss for words, and yet your Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And you become everything that we need in those moments. You're our comforter, you're a sustainer, you're our provider, you're our savior. And right now I want to pray on behalf of every person in this room. I want to pray on behalf of Pastor Phil. I want to pray on behalf of the leadership of this church. I want to pray on behalf of the body of First Baptist Church. I want to pray on behalf of everyone who has named themselves something that is outside of your decree, that's outside of your word. They've named themselves rejected, they've named themselves abandoned, they've named themselves broken. They've named themselves used. They've named themselves too much. They've named themselves not enough. They've named themselves left alone. They've named themselves They've named themselves shouldn't be here. They've named themselves, How Could Anyone Love Me? And so, Lord, I want to speak your truth over this congregation right now. I just ask that you would give them the perspective, give them your eyes to see who you are, and that you have declared them righteous. You have declared them chosen. You have declared them called. You have declared them loved. You have custom designed a plan for them that they are here, not by accident, not by happenstance, but they are here for a reason. There is a divine providential meaning for them sitting here right now today that you want to move and stir in their hearts and lives like you have never moved and stirred before. You want to bring waves of refreshment into the tired spaces of their souls. You want to bring revival into the crevices where we feel like we are dead. And so God, I pray right now that you would give each one of us, your Holy Spirit can do this for each one of us. You can give us a new name. You can declare something different over our lives. Even as I speak right now, I may not be able to say all of the different names that are represented here in this room, but you can, Jesus. You are powerful enough to speak a better word over our lives. I pray that that would spring up inside of us right now, that names would begin to pop up in each other's heads right now, that you would use each other to speak that. As we walk out into the atrium, would you give a Holy Spirit divine prophetic word to people to go up to someone who seems like they are downtrodden, who seems like they are discouraged to say, hey, you are strength. You are hope, you are healing. You are purpose. You are here for a reason. Rescue us, Jesus. There's nothing we can manufacture about this. Your word has its power in and of itself. And so I pray that your word would be the thing that it has and that it would do everything that it has done since the beginning of time, that it would take the chaos of this world and it would bring it to order. And you would establish everything under your order. May our lives be put back together because of you, Jesus. And may this body be a beacon on a hill, a light in a time of darkness. May it shine brighter in this dark world than light has ever shown before because you were at the helm. And would people be drawn to it? Not drawn to a personality, not drawn to a a government structure or organization, but they would be drawn to the living, breathing, active God that lives in this people. You are living and active, God. Your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. You convict and you heal. You cut and you mend up. So we ask that you would do that for us now. Bring us to life. Restore us, cleanse us, bring joy back into our lives. And we ask this in your name, amen.